0: Well, good morning, church. It's great to be with you this morning. My name is Pastor Jay. I am the youth pastor here at Westchester Nazarene Church. And um, before we get started with this story that hopefully is going to shape us in positive ways, now I know they won't be able to hear us, but. Uh, Pastor Young Duck Kim of the, our Korean church is in the youth space right now, and this is his inauguration Sunday, so we have the district superintendent back there. I want them to be able to hear us. That's the goal. So, can we cheer on the count of three, as loud as we can, and clap for what's taking place? One, two, three. Yeah. They probably have no idea what that's for, but hopefully they felt it, felt the energy, and we are just so excited that that's taking place. So if you see Pastor Young Ducker's family later, just uh, make sure to congratulate him. We are excited uh, for this church and for where that's going to lead the Korean church community. Uh, Well, hey, we're in this series, and as Deb alluded in her prayer, called The Stories That Shape Us. The stories that shape us. And so we are looking at parables in the Bible, parables from Jesus, uh, that shaped the people of that time for specific reasons and towards specific things. And our hope is that in this Lenten journey, as we are journeying towards the cross, that we would be shaped by these stories too. Um, One of the things, I'm going to go ahead and tell you to do this now, one of the best ways that I become shaped and am shaped is when I take notes. So, I don't know if you're a note taker or not, but that is a great way to be shaped. So if you have your journals with you, that's going to help us do that. So pull out your journal, pull out your phone. I want to encourage you, if you want to be shaped today, I'm not saying for good or for bad yet. If you want to be shaped today, then go ahead and pull out your notes uh, and follow along in that way. Uh, When Faith and I lived in Pennsylvania, um, many of you know. And I've told the story. We would, you know, pass a buggy on our way to work every day. That was just Amish Mennonite community, and it feels so long ago. Yet the one thing that you know sticks with me is the smells of that time. Um, there's one smell that's a positive smell, not just like you know cow or chicken manure smell. Uh, a positive smell that we still recall is the smell when we would walk into our favorite ice cream store, Fox Meadows Creamery, and it was the best. No matter what, kind of like the Chick-fil-A line out here, except, you know, on Sundays. Uh, Any time that you would walk there, the line would be out the door, and you wouldn't even bat an eye. You'd be like, ah, 45-minute wait, cool. I mean, just just for ice cream, because that's how good it was. And uh, that's definitely something that shaped Faith and I a little bit, uh, was consuming all of that ice cream, right? And, but we loved it. And, and something cool about Fox Meadow Creamery, is that as you're eating ice cream there, you can eat outside or inside. It was built right in front of the pasture where they had all of the cows, and they had this incredible barn. And I mean, it was so nice, but they loved to highlight their cows. Their cows had names. They'd give you fast facts. You could walk through, see how they made all of it, and so you were looking at the cows as you're eating the ice cream that they prepared for you, in a way, and so it was this really awkward, uncomfortable experience, Um, but something interesting about cows. I did not know this, by the way. Cows do this thing in order to get nutrients in them. It's called ruminate. And to ruminate means, buckle up. uh, Ruminate means after you chew something up, so for the cows, that's grass, and they swallow it. Ruminating means you spit it back up, chew it again, swallow it again, spit it back up, chew it up, swallow it again. And cows do this over and over and over, that's the process, that's what ruminating is, to get the maximum amount of nutrients that they can. I'm confident that at some point in your life, you have already chewed up and swallowed the story that we are gonna hear today. But what I want all of us to do, figuratively, not literally, is to ruminate together. I want us to spit this story back up and chew on it some more to see what nutrients and what new things that we can learn from this parable today. You're you're probably wondering what it is. Just wait. Just wait. Um, So, if you are willing to ruminate with me, I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, I'm in. All right. We are in. Some of you, you know, gave each other high fives. We're going to ruminate together. I can't wait. if you're taking notes today, this will help your ruminification, <laughs> it's not a word, it is now, um, to help you, if you're, the title of today's sermon is going to be, Who's In? But let me spell that. You're like, why? W-H-O apostrophe S-I-N-N. Grammatically incorrect. You'll find out why later. Who's in? So let's go ahead and ruminate on the story of the Good Samaritan. This is Luke chapter 10. You can follow along the screen or in your Bibles. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Has everyone spit it back up? All right, let's start chewing. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live, but he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, and here's where the popular story comes into play, one of my favorites. Jesus replies, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him. Passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pour, pouring oil and wine, and when he put this man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. I'm confident that all of you, if you've not heard this account from Luke chapter 10, have at least heard the gesture or phrase, Good Samaritan. It's something that gets thrown around all the time, uh, something that's, you know, somebody goes out of their way to do something nice for a stranger. It's so popular and so common, even Urban Dictionary has the right definition. To go out of your way to do something kind for a stranger, right? And don't get me wrong, there are incredible people who do spectacular things in the Good Samaritan category. Uh, When I think of Good Samaritan, I often think of first responders, I think of firefighters, I think of search and rescue people. Um, Actually, one of Faith and I's friends, he's a first responder, paramedic, and he's always the first one on the scene for like a car crash or anything um, to that degree. And so he's always the first one there. And you, know, you don't ask questions, you just you jump in, right? And to me, that's, I mean, that's good Samaritan status. Not only that, he's now training to be a, a leader for a search and rescue team as well, because that just wasn't enough, right? I mean, there are some great good Samaritan you know, occupations and deeds that people can do. But in my opinion, we have dwindled down what Good Samaritan means. We You know, just thrown around for everything. Maybe somebody picks up your wallet. Uh, maybe somebody holds the door open for you when you walk in, and that's a, that's a great deed. That's a Good Samaritan deed. I mean, Good Samaritan is, ba- like, if you just don't troll someone on social media, like, you get the Purple Heart Award for Good Samaritan. Now, I mean, it's, it's easy to be, from the world standard, a Good Samaritan. And one of the reasons I think that's true is because I've seen the power of kindness increase because the practice of kindness has decreased. Good Samaritan, it can be anybody now, any deed, anything. Uh, Just two weeks ago, you know, sometimes, okay, I need to let you in on a secret. Um, I don't know if this is true of Pastor Alex, and it's not true of me today. Sometimes pastors say this thing just the other day. Just know that's... In a definite amount of time that, you know, happened a long time ago. But today, I, I really do mean, uh, two weeks ago, I was out to eat, and I left my phone in the restaurant, didn't realize it, and so I go out to my car, and I'm about to get into my car, and one of the managers of the store recognized that I left my phone, grabbed my phone, like bust through the doors, like Mr. Kool-Aid busting through the wall, and was like shouting, like, sir, sir, and he hands me my phone, and of course, my first thought was, oh, thank you for being a good Samaritan. And that's good, and I'm thankful that that man felt compelled to do that. But that's not what Jesus means today. That's not what Jesus wants us to walk away with, is us to use that phrase, to be that more. He doesn't mean something nice that someone does for a stranger. In fact, this story isn't even designed to tell the expert of the law that's come before him. Hey, go and be a good Samaritan. I mean, this this guy, he knew all the right steps, he knew all the things he was supposed to do, so Jesus isn't telling him, go and be a nice person. Go and help out a stranger. Jesus is doing something else, and this is kinda how I want us to chew on what we're dealing with today. Jesus puts a mirror in front of the guy and says, I want you to listen to this story and see how it's gonna shape you today. Who are you in this story? So instead of him assuming that he's the good Samaritan, he's giving him a mirror, and he's saying, how are you going to allow this story to shape you today? And so that's what I want all of us to do. So let's start chewing. We've read the story. Now let's walk through it, kind of break it down verse by verse, and see what nutrients we can gather from it today. And we're going to start in verse 25, where on one occasion an expert of the law comes to test Jesus, and it says he stands up to test Jesus. Now, I'm gonna assume, so we all stood for worship, and I love standing for worship and praising Jesus in that way, Um, when the Spirit's moving and we're feeling, sometimes people stand up and give testimonies, right? Um, Hopefully none of you stand up to test anything I'm gonna say, but this man, sharp, smart, religious guy, probably just got back from seminary class and now is going to stood up to test Jesus. Now here's the thing. This guy thought he already knew all the answers. Another translation, instead of test, says came to trap Jesus. And the reason that he came to trap Jesus is this expert in the law who was smart, who was in seminary, who knew all the right things, he represents a larger group of people that are not a fan of Jesus because of this believism that they think Jesus is teaching, that if I just believe in Jesus, I can go to heaven. And they wanted to shut this down because as an expert in the law, similar to Alex's first message in this story, he was holding up his rewards and his medals and his report card and everything that that he knew, showing the depth of his knowledge. And basically, he was upset because With Jesus' message, Jesus is the hero who saves us. But for this guy, he's nauseated by the message of grace because he's no longer the hero of his own story. Jesus is the hero of his story. And so, feeling nauseated, he stands up to test Jesus. And what he's hoping he hears is, Jesus just starts, he's hoping Jesus just starts clapping, just like we clap for young duck, right? He's hoping Jesus stands up and starts clapping for him and say, you are so smart, you are so good, I I have to have you on my team. But Jesus doesn't fall into his trap. So we have this battle of wits. He asks the question, how do you inherit eternal life? But Jesus responds with a question. What is written in the law? The man replies, love God with all your heart and love your neighbor. So Jesus says, that's exactly right. Great job. That's exactly right. Do this. Do this and you will live. Do this and we will share in the joy of the resurrection together. Do this and you are gonna love what happens. Love God totally and love your neighbor as yourself. And so this is, is, believe it or not, where it gets a little awkward though because in Jesus saying do this, what's he insinuating? He wasn't doing that before. He knew it. He's an expert in the law. He replied with the right answer, but Jesus says, "Do this, and you will be justified before God." So amid the awkwardness, the man responds, the expert in the law responds, uh, and he says, "So So who's my neighbor? Like it, it, it's not everyone, right? Like It can't be everyone. Like who, who specifically are you talking about here?) Uh, And what's funny is, this man now finds himself in a pinch. The test has been flipped. He initially stood up to test Jesus, and now he's still standing, uh, at least we haven't been told he sat down, but instead of standing to test Jesus, verse 29 tells us he's now standing to justify himself before Jesus. That happens when we test Jesus that way, right? So Jesus, you know, his his answer, uh, very Socratically speaking, he answers with a question, then a story, then another question, and this story that we just read, I mean, it is is one of my all-time favorite stories in the Bible that Jesus shares. But here's the thing, and we said it before, Jesus isn't giving this man the answer, he's giving him a mirror. And here's what this guy has learned from hearing this story. When Jesus gives him the mirror, he found out I'm no good Samaritan. You're no good Samaritan. But Let's put a mirror in front of ourselves. Let's chew on this a little more. And let's see as we dive into the story what Jesus tells us. So we have this amazing story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Pause. There's a whole lot going on here. First of all, when people heard, when the expert of the law, when all the, the whole audience heard that he was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, their alarm bells start going off for three reasons. Number one, it's one of the most dangerous roads to be going down. They didn't want him to be alone. They, they, were, they were really sitting there hoping, oh, no, I hope this man is armed, oh, man, I hope this guy leaves early in the morning. Uh, Another reason they were concerned is this road is very long. It's 17 miles long, and so it would be a long walk for him, and so actually this road, because of how dangerous it was, is nicknamed the Way of the Blood. The Way of the Blood, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, 17-mile road. And it's also very narrow. And so they're hoping this guy isn't going alone because this is a place where it was known to be mugged or, you know, camel jacked or something, right? And they didn't want that to happen. They immediately know, "Uh uh-oh, this isn't going to be good. And it doesn't take long for us to get to that. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and went away leaving him half dead. So that happens, and that's what they expected to happen. That's what they were concerned about. But... Then a priest walks by, and this is like, okay, they had alarm bells going off, and now they're like, oh, okay, this is going to be a good story after all. A priest walks by, who he was probably, you know, working on his classes. He was at the temple. He was maybe preaching, teaching, worshiping, getting the temple ready, doing temple godly work, right? And by his nationality and by his occupation, he's now walking towards the sky, and he is obligated to help the man. But instead, we already said the road was narrow, he passes by and would literally have to step over the man to avoid him. So this priest, who's obligated, passes by. But then, we got good news. Uh, By the way, the priest is the most likely person that should have helped that man. But now we have the second most likely person. So I, I kind of think of it, okay, so Pastor Alex has walked by and at, now Pastor Alex would have helped the man, I wanna make that clear. And he passes by, the priest does, and doesn't help him. But then we have Pastor Deb Crabtree. Now she's the second person in this story and she also would have helped the person passing by. But in this, for the sake of the story, the Levite does the same thing and steps over the man and passes by. Both of these people, obligated by nationality and occupation, and they pass by. But then a Samaritan. Then a Samaritan. Now I'm not gonna be able to do this justly. Jews hated Samaritans. Samaritans hated Jews. A common prayer that Jews would include as they were praying would go something like this, and I thank God that there will be no Samaritans in the resurrection. That's how much they hated the Samaritans. This was a normative part of their prayer. And it's not just, well, let's go deeper. The disciples had some beef with the Samaritans. If you go one chapter back, so we're in Luke chapter 10, let's go to Luke chapter nine, right? And in Luke chapter nine, Jesus is, needs to go to Jerusalem, And so he asked his disciples, hey, go before me and find a room for me. That would be really great. Get something set up. That would be awesome. Just get us prepared so that we're not held up on our journey. So disciples go before him, and they go to Samaria, which is where Jesus told them to go to find this hotel, you know, five-star catering, all that. And they go there. The caterers pull away. The hotel doors are shut. Nobody wants them there. They do not want them a part of Samaria. They do not want them staying there. So the disciples come back and report all this to Jesus. And this gets us to Luke chapter 9, verse 54. And it says this When the disciples, James and John, hold up, not like, I mean, two of the top three disciples, like two of Jesus' closest disciples, James and John, learned of all of this, they said, Master, do you want us to call down a bolt of lightning out of the sky and incinerate them? That seems like the logical next step. And Jesus turns to them and says, of course not. Of course not. I have come to bring life, not death. Of course not. But even Jesus' disciples, this is how much Jews and Samaritans hated each other. So the priest passed by, the Levite passed by, and then the Samaritan stops in the Samaritan response, and if you're taking notes, I want you to write this part down. I think there's three things that we can learn from and that we can learn about the Samaritan. Number one, he took notice. Number two, he took pity. And Number three, he took action. Now you'll notice everyone stopped and saw the Samaritan. It says that all three of them saw the Samaritan. So that might not be the most monumental thing, but of course, we can't respond to something that we don't see. And so they all noticed, they all saw, but it's the second action, the second uh, observation that I think it, it really starts kicking in. He took pity, the scripture says. Now another word for pity, you could use compassion. And this was, uh, I don't know how long ago this was, but in one of Pastor Alex's message, he, he helped us learn that the word compassion is in the Greek, spalgnizomai. And spalgnizomai literally means that it hits you in your gut, wrenches you so much, bends you over that there's no way you can proceed forward without responding to the need in front of you. That is compassion. In fact, compassion is the most common attribute attributed to Jesus within the Bible, that this is the feeling that he feels the most, is compassion. So he took notice, he took pity, he had compassion on the man, so he responded to that. And then the third one is the most crucial, he took action, he responded, he was compelled through his compassion to respond to this man. But here's how he responds. The man's riding on a donkey. He steps off the higher position because it would be a lot easier to pass someone on a donkey, right? Steps off the donkey, addresses the man, puts oil and wine, which is neosporin and hydrogen peroxide on the man, and lifts him to the higher position while he's in the lower position, leads him to the inn. He takes out two denarii throws it on the table to pay for his stay, and then pays a little extra to cover any additional cost. And so not only though is he paying in monetary costs, but he's paying in his time cost as well, which may have been one of the reasons why the priest and the Levite walked on by, right? Maybe they were busy, they had something to do. It's certainly going to be inconvenient for them. But uh, he puts all that aside, and he pays with his money, he pays with his time, and you notice that because he has to leave pretty quickly after spending the time with him, after taking time to do all that. And who knows, maybe this inn was out of the way. We don't know how much off-track this man was from where he was supposed to go. We just know that he was willing to give all of that up, knowing that there was somebody in need that he needed to care for, that was in front of him, and so he gives all of this up, despite the inconvenience, despite the cost, despite the hate, he took notice, he took action, and he took pity, and this is, I think, something so important for us to chew on, but this isn't the main point of the story. This isn't the point. Jesus is trying to make. This story wasn't told to this guy to tell him and send him off to say, now go and be a good Samaritan. Now go and pick up people's wallets when they fall. Now go and hold the door open. We should do those things, that's also not what I'm saying. But that's not the point of this story. If we were to ask ourselves, Who am I in this story? Here's who we want to be. Like the expert in the law, we actually, we want to be the good Samaritan in this story. But Jesus is the good Samaritan. In fact, I think too often, or more often than not, we actually find ourselves as the Levite. We actually find ourselves as the priest, the one who unfortunately, passes by the opportunities to help. We might find ourselves in that position more, uh, not taking notice, pity, or action. Uh, And I, I also think that all of us, or many of us, at some point, right, have felt like the man on the side of the road, where we've been bleeding out, we're hurt, we're broken, we're in need, and people keep passing us by, and we're reaching for all these different things for help to try to save us. But it's Jesus is the one who takes notice, takes pity, takes action, doesn't pass by, and, saves us, it is Jesus who is the good Samaritan. Jesus is the one who saves, Jesus is the one who picks us up when we're down. How can we, oh, I want us to capture this. How can we see Jesus not as the good Samaritan? Riding on a donkey. As the King of kings and the Lord of lords steps off the donkey and raises us up, leads us in the direction we're supposed to go. He has paid the price for our sins, he is leaving and he is coming back again for us. So what's our role in the story if Jesus is the good Samaritan? You and I are the innkeeper. Here's how. If Jesus is the good Samaritan, Jesus is the one bringing people toward us, paying the price for people, saving people, he's asking us, to care for and look after them. (laughs) The two most qualified people, they miss it. They miss it. They don't take notice. They don't take action. They don't take pity. But Jesus, here's how he's inviting us to be an innkeeper, here's the analogy I want to give. How many of you guys have seen the redwood forest? Redwood trees, redwood forest. So I have not part of Faith and I's bucket list adventure is to see all the national parks. I think we're going to Acadia, Maine this summer, crossing that one off our list, but Redwood Forest sounds amazing to me. Um, Redwood trees are, they say, magnificent. They stand 325 feet tall, which blows my mind. And do you know how and why they're able to stand that tall? Well, you know, most we would think roots, right? Because their roots go deep. But that's not true. The tallest trees in the world stand tall, not because their roots go deep, but because their roots go wide. A redwood tree's roots go six feet deep, and over, or up to 100 feet wide. And when their roots go wide, what they do is they intertwine and they fuse with the other roots around them. So as a redwood forest, they are literally holding each other up. And Jesus is asking us to be a redwood tree, to be the person that is holding each other up. Who is within a hundred feet of you? Who is in proximity to you? Who is Jesus bringing before you as the Savior, as the Good Samaritan, and us as the innkeepers to say, take after my people, because I've paid the price for them, and when I return, Am I gonna come back and they are going to be raised to life as well? Are you gonna take the hydrogen peroxide in this morning? Are you gonna bandage them, take care of them? Because when I return, I want to see all of them raised to life. But too often, we focus only on spiritual depth and not on spiritual width. If you were to construct a building and the foundation was only six feet deep, that building would not stand. I'm not a construction person, but a 325 foot building, skyscraper, with only a six foot foundation, yeah, that ain't happening. And yet, that's how we try to live. But if we want to live toward the life that Jesus is calling us to, it's not just about our spiritual depth, it is about our spiritual width. Ben, I want to go ahead and invite you up. Um, as we close. And I want to speak to two audiences today. The two audiences that I think represent this room because you might have seen yourself. Now, you were probably hoping, oh, yes, we're going to leave here being challenged and equipped and encouraged and swallowing more nutrients to help us go and live like the Good Samaritan. But Jesus is the Good Samaritan. Now, you might find yourself presently being shaped by the man on the side of the road. The man who needs something, the man who's broken, the one who's wounded, the one who's hurt, the one who is left half dead. Jesus is the only one who saves. We can reach for other things, we can seek restoration in other things none of that is going to satisfy us, fulfill us, heal us, restore us. Jesus is the only one who saves. And I don't know who needs to know that, but somebody needs to know that. Jesus is the only one that saves. The thing you're seeking after, you're chasing, the websites you're clicking through, none of that is going to satisfy you. Jesus is the only one who saves. But to my second audience, we need more innkeepers. So my question for you is, who's in your in? Who's in your inn? Who is within 100 feet of you that you're not connecting with? Who is around you that you're not building a relationship with? Who is Jesus bringing before you? Who's in your proximity that we need to talk to, get to know? Who's the waitress that you go and see every week? Who's the realtor that you're working with? Who are your neighbors around you? This, Who is your neighbor? Anybody around you that you can connect with. That's who Jesus wants us to care for, invest in, and lift up. Because Jesus has already paid the price. He's already brought them before us. He's laid it down and he's saying, are you going to take care? Because he doesn't care how big your inn is. He cares how many rooms are filled. Because when he returns, he wants as many people as possible to know and experience the saving power of Jesus. And so just as you have hopefully experienced the power of the Good Samaritan and now you're doing your duty as an innkeeper, share that with everybody around you. In closing, we're gonna sing the song, Yes, I Will. And here's what I want this song to mean and here's what I want your reflection to be. I want you to say yes to something. Maybe you're saying yes to Jesus because, guess what, he's the only one who saves. Or you're saying yes to those around you because that's who Jesus came to save. So I want us to say yes. And like the Redwoods, if you dare, I dare you to put your arms wide open. Because as we connect with Jesus, we want to connect with each other. And man, the best way that I connect with Jesus is saying, yes, I will, God. Yes, I will praise your name. Yes, I will glorify you. Yes, I will do whatever you need me to do. But I'm saying yes to Jesus because it's Jesus who's the good Samaritan. And it's Jesus who helps me be the innkeeper. So will you say, yes, I will? And I'll leave you with this question, who's in your inn? Would you stand, and let's worship together.